All right. Um, this morning, we want to look at a few verses. Um, I don't know what it is here lately. I, I can't seem to quit. I end up with at least seven or eight pages of notes. I think I got eight this morning, and I've been trying to cut it back and cut it back and cut it back. And uh, and I, I think I'm done, and then I say, oh, I could slip that in right there. And that's what I did when I was in the office a little bit ago. I had to slip another one in there. All right, so we're going to start with Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and the title of this message is Asleep in Jesus. Asleep in Jesus. So Psalm 16 and then verses 10 and 11, we're just going to look at a couple of verses here where David says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As you get older, and I am approaching the 70 mark, uh, you do begin to think about things differently than you did when you were 20. And I do think about death way more than I ever used to. And I I don't know if I hope some of you do that are the same age as me, but I'm suspecting that it happens. And of course, it's just, it's, it's just the reality of life. You know, you, you begin to think about such things. And now I, I am planning on, by the way, I am planning on living for quite a few more years. I, I'm sought the Lord for about 10 or 12 more. I'd like to get it into my 80s if I could. <laughs> but I, my main thing is, is if I do, I want to speak, make sure that I'm faithful all that distance. I don't want to live it just for the sake of being alive and living. I want, I want to live it as Mark's song message was all about. And uh, so anyway, um, but nonetheless, it's a whole lot nearer at this age than it was when I was 20 or even last year. So what we're going to do this morning in this study is look at some of the scriptural evidence for a person's a conscious existence after we die. And you might want to know that not everybody believes that. Um, you can find evidence going both directions. You can search the internet and find information that says uh, even scientists have now discovered that uh, there is a conscious life after death. Well, I'm not too worried about what they say about it, but it's what God says about it that I'm concerned with and want to know about. So, um, but there are good people who believe that when you die, you simply fall asleep, both soul and body. And then that's it. And you don't wake up until the resurrection. And when the resurrection comes, your body is raised from the grave, and you wake up, and there you are again. It's like you never, you know, life never ended for you. The day you died, and then the day you wake up is just a moment in time for you. Well, I don't think that's really what scriptures teach, although there are several verses in the Bible that could be taken that way, and I think some at least misinterpreted. 
So we're just going to take a look at that this morning. And I want us to start by just looking at the words that are used in the New Testament for sleep. And there are two in particular where the word is used for physically dying as well as a metaphor for excuse a metaphor for physically dying sorry and then for actually falling asleep so with that in mind we want to start with um, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 5 and uh, once we get rolling here it's not going to be possible probably to keep up with all of these so I'm not going to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 5 so you might just have to jot the verses down as we go in Matthew 25 fifth verse says this and you know the context there is the the uh, the parable concerning the ten virgins and it says but while the bridegroom was delayed they all slumbered and slept and in that context it just simply means they were sleeping they fell asleep and there are several other references just like that mark chapter 14 uh, verse 37 first thessalonians 5 chapter 7 all talking about physical sleep over here in matthew chapter 8 if you turn back a few pages it says this and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And that simply means he was physically conked out. He was sleeping in the midst of the storm. And we're familiar with that. Sunday school kids are familiar with that story. He was asleep. But it also has reference to death. Now, um, this particular word uh, with reference to death only occurs with one person and that's Jairus's daughter but it's used in all three gospel accounts where it occurs Matthew Mark uh, and Luke and in all three accounts it uses the same word and it all has reference to the fact that she had died so let's look at look at uh, Mark, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 24 We'll just look at one of the, well, for the time being, we'll look at one passage. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 24. Well, if I'd get away from Matthew 19, I'd have the right one. All right, there we go. Concerning her, he said, uh, after he had you know, gone to her residence and entered the room he said to them make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping and then if you go to luke's account which we'll look at later you'll see that it was very plain that she was dead and matter of fact it says those standing around ridiculed jesus because they knew she was dead but it was a, it was a very real death but the same word for sleep dozing off like Jesus did in the boat during the storm, same word used here to refer to this little girl who had died. Now, um, in Mark chapter, uh, excuse me, in Luke chapter eight and verse 55, we get a hint here of the fact that she really, really was dead. Well, actually it's the more than a hint, it's a pretty direct statement. So if you want to turn over there, I think it's worthwhile. Luke chapter 8 and verse 55. So after they had gone in and uh, 
Jesus had spoken to her and, and raised her up. He says there, um, and I don't have the right reference here, obviously. 52, is that what I wanted? No, I, I've got, I'm not even in, it must, is it Luke? Luke 8, 55. Am I? Okay. I can't even get on the right chapter. I'm in Luke 9, so. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mark was probably right then. I was in the wrong chapter. Um, I'm gonna look, let's look at the whole extended passage here a little bit. Um, he says there in, in uh, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. That's, that same word, by the way, is used in all three accounts. So they're consistent all the way. Do, you, do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And the interesting thing there is the words be made well is the word be saved, which would be translated that way in other places. But as we understand and know in certain contexts, the word saved means to be made healthy or whole or complete. And that's what is being said here. So verse 51, when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter and James and John and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. Now who was in the room with Jesus? Peter, James, John, and mom and dad. And they ridiculed Jesus, it says, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside and took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. And then her spirit returned. So you know that she was dead. If your spirit is gone from your body, there is no life in your body. As a matter of fact, there are other scriptures in the Word of God that tell us very plainly that when we die, our spirit goes back to God. And in this case, her spirit returned. She was a dead little girl, and Jesus brought her back to life and raised her up. And when he says, little girl, arise, just kind of hang on that thought for a minute or a while, because we're going to come to this concept again, that word arise. So having said that, then, there's another word in the New Testament that talks about sleep, and it, it's a similar word, uh, but it talks about natural sleep as well, and it's a long one. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, uh, but it simply means, in, in all instances, just like this word, it's used of natural sleep, just falling off. Uh, Bullinger makes a little bit of a nuance to it. He says it's more like, though, it's not intentional sleep. In other words, the first one is you know, folks, I'm going to bed. So you go in, you get your PJs on, and you crawl in bed, and the whole idea is you're intending to go to sleep, as opposed to sitting there in the pew while I'm rambling on, and you get a little drowsy, and you're not intentionally wanting to go to sleep, but you can't hardly help it, and you doze off. 
Anybody had that experience? <laughs> hey, we had one person confessing, but he's hidden in a room over here where you can't see him. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When we went to the Nassau and we were first in Baptist Bible Church, and that it was a brand new ministry, and the building had just been erected, and it was a metal building, no insulation. And boy, I'm telling you, when you got about 300 people in that, it was about this size here, it got hot. And yeah. and we called that diving for conch. You just nod your head, you know, and you'd try to stay awake, man, and you'd be fighting it. And uh, oh boy, I had too many of those experiences. And unfortunately, people that pointed them out to me. I saw you driving for conk over there today. Okay, thank you. Didn't need to hear about it, but I did. Well, that's what he's saying here, the distinction. Of, 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 and I think, as far as I could tell, I find fairly minor distinction, but it, it is used in those cases where, like say, for instance, when Jesus was in the garden and he told the disciples, wait here while I go and pray. Remember, and they got sleepy and they dozed off. That word would have been used there. And it, it is used there in that case. They didn't intentionally, you know, lay down and say, hey, he's over there praying. Let's all go take a nap. It was that they couldn't help themselves. And so off to sleep they went. But it is used, obviously, if they fell asleep, it's natural sleep, normal sleep. It's just that it, they weren't necessarily planning on it. Um, in Acts chapter 12, when, when uh, you don't have to turn there, just a brief reference, when uh, Peter was in prison and he said he was sleeping between the two guards, it's the same word used here. So, I mean, it's just plain old natural sleep sometimes too. And I'm sure that in that case, Peter probably intended to go to sleep. Um, it was the middle of the night. Now, it's used in other instances too. And it's used of, one of the things that, really are is important concerning this word and I'll, I'll point it out a little more here in a minute but it's always used of believers when they have died the other word is not used this is used of believers when they die and are said to be asleep in Jesus or asleep in the Lord okay so this one here 1st Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 now I'm going to turn over there. I'm going to see if I can get to the right chapter on this one. I got it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Where it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, you can see from that verse... Um, when it says that, that Jesus risen from the dead, at this point in time, he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's all the saints prior to the death of Christ. And not only that, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 36, um, even David, it says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. And we know that David was a believer. So it's used of those 
prior to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But it's also used of those who died after he ascended to heaven. And so you have this example in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60 with Stephen. In Acts 7 and verse 59, it says there, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, if you're being pelted with stones, as Stephen was, there was no way in this world that it was natural sleep. But it was a death that he died. But the scripture uses this terminology to describe believers who die in the Lord. That's why I titled this, asleep in Jesus, all right? Now, if you look at um, also, we'll say, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter four and to a very familiar passage. 1 Corinthians chapter four concerning the rapture. But we're not going to read the entire passage, but beginning in verse 13, First. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died. And obviously, this has been written to uh, the church at Thessalonica. There, maybe there could have been some believers there prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus, but in all likelihood, since Paul evangelized this area, these were believers who had fallen asleep in the Lord after the ascension of Christ. And he says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He's going to bring them with him. So paying again, careful attention to the words. He will bring them with him when he comes. So the point of this and pointing these verses out is simply to say that New Testament words are used uh, in a consistent way. Two of the words, there's more than one, two words, by the way, but the other one is never used uh, in, in, as a metaphor for death. It's just used to describe somebody going to sleep. But it's these two that describe in two ways, natural death and just natural sleep, going to sleep. Now, um, I wanna read an, ex an extended quote uh, because I think it's a very important one uh, from, uh, well, <laughs> you ever heard of Hog and Vine? I don't know what the guy, C.F. Hogg, I think, I don't only know his initials. And then you had, everybody's familiar with Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words. Well, this is a guy he collaborated with in the writing of uh, 1 Thessalonians. And so concerning this word sleep in this passage here, this is what they said. This metaphorical use of the word sleep is appropriate because of the similarity and appearance between a sleeping body and a dead body. In other words, a sleeping body lies down. A dead body lies down. 
why does my mind go off on things like this? We were just looking at a picture last night with Jeremy and Krista, and we were looking in there. I had some old stuff from my grandmother's and some old pictures in there. And he's looking at this one picture, this uh, man and this woman. I mean, it must, it was from the 1800s. And he says, does that woman look like she's alive? I wonder if they propped her up there and put, you know, because they used to do that kind of stuff. They propped her up and they, so we're all there with a magnifying glass trying to look at her eyes to see if she was, oh boy, that's way off. Normally, dead bodies are lying down. Normally, people asleep are lying down. That's the relationship. But you think about that now. Keep thinking about that. Because restfulness and peace normally characterize both. The object of the metaphor is to suggest that as the sleeper does not cease to exist while his body sleeps, so the dead person continues to exist despite his absence from the region in which those who remain can communicate with him. And that as sleep is known to be temporary, so the death of the body is temporary as well. That the body alone is in view in the metaphor is evident from these points. Number one, from the I could have just put these down and made you think I did all this, but I didn't. Hog and Vine did it. So the point of it is simply this. From the derivation of the word... Uh, I better skip it. I'm also going to try to say it, but I won't. From, uh, and it comes from a particular word. In other words, this, the second word I'm talking about that means to die, to fall asleep in Jesus, natural death, comes from a word that means to lie down. So you see the natural similarity to it. But here's the thing I want, I want us to notice here. Compare that with the word for resurrection. Anastasis, which just simply means to stand up. That's what it literally means, stand up. So you keep the similarities of the words used between one who has died and one who is experiencing resurrection, they just stand up. They rise up again. Remember with Talitha? Arise, Talitha, stand up from being dead, from lying down. Well, <clears throat> in Daniel chapter 12 and verse two, another familiar passage, you might remember that it's the only absolutely clear, clear place in the Old Testament where it speaks about resurrection. And he says, some, some, will come out of the dust of the ground. We are created from dust of ground. When we die, we go back to dust. And when the resurrection occurs, we come right back up out of the dust again. That is the body, the physical body. Your soul can't return to dust. So what, what are we trying to say here? And what is he trying to say is that the New Testament presents a distinction between our soul and our body. And those who teach that we enter into what's called soul sleep are telling us that both of these go to sleep when you die. 
And what I'm trying to show here is that in the New Testament, it doesn't say that. That the soul part portion of our being does not fall asleep at death. Consistently, it is always, when it talks about us going asleep, it's the body that falls asleep. Okay? So, keep on. Let's keep keep going. Um, oh, and I could go more. I mean, there's some things, uh, the words that are used in the Septuagint, uh, the same words used to describe those who are lying down and so on. We'll pass that up for now. Um, next thing. There is another word derived from this, it's a cognate, koimaterion, I can say that one, but you would never guess what our English word is, but it's cemetery. And that word simply means, koimaterion means, uh, the Greeks in secular usage used it as a rest house. It was a place to go rest. It was a place to go lie down and sleep. And so cemetery simply means a place to go rest, to lie down. So when you think of cemetery, you just think of a resting place for believers. Remember, this word is always used of believers, and it was believers who coined this term for cemetery. A place where we put our departed loved ones to lie down, to rest, in anticipation of them being raised back up again one day. The body. The body. Now I have one more quote here I told you, and this one's not quite as long, but this is from a guy named B. Edmund Hebert. I've mentioned his name to you before, and this is from his commentary on Thessalonians. And listen to what he said. He said, The figure of death is sleep cannot be pressed to establish the teaching that in the intermediate state the soul is in unconscious repose, that is soul sleep. Now the intermediate state just means the time between I die and the resurrection. What happens to me in between there? What's the condition of my soul then? I know the condition of my body. The Bible is very clear and plain. I mean, it's in the grave and we physically can see that. It's evident. We don't have any issues with that. It's the question of our soul that we have questions about, wondering what happens. Uh, so, and our bodies obviously have no more communication with the living. That's why, now I'm jumping ahead of myself. I'll, I'll pass that. Um, just remember again, the body has no communication with the living when it's dead. And as you say, well, that sounds pretty obvious to me. The theory of soul sleep is inconsistent with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, that God's purpose for us is whether we live or die, we should live together with Christ. Now, if you're still in 1 Thessalonians, which I am, uh, look at chapter 5 and verse 10. Now, it's a, it's a rather lengthy discussion there. He begins, and you remember, he's, this is a follow-up now to his comments about the rapture and us being caught up to be with the Lord. He says in verse 1, Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, and so on. Down in verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So you're looking at a, uh, a strict either or. You're either in the light or you're not. If you're a believer, you're in the light. You may not be walking in light, but as a believer, you are in the light. If you're not, you're in darkness. Now he says then, in verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now the word sleep there does not have anything to do with natural sleep or physical death. It's a, it's a metaphor for not being mentally and morally alert to what's going on around you and how you're living your life in view of what's to come. You're sleeping. So he says, uh, therefore, in verse 6, when he says, do not, uh, let us not sleep uh, uh, as others do, but let us watch. By the way, and literally you would say it's a present participle. Let's be watching and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who, now that, again, is literal. If you sleep, you sleep at night. That's a literal sleeping. And those who get drunk, that's literal, get drunk at night. At least they used to. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Whether we wake or whether we sleep. Now, <clears throat> All I want to show up to this point is simply this, as the imagery that the New Testament presents to us with regard to sleep in association with death, or sleep in association with just natural sleep. Sometime later would be a good time to deal with sleeping in, in a moral sense, in a state of lethargy or incom, uh, complacency. Uh, in our Christian walk. But we'll deal with that another time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul talks about our earthly house in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 where he says our earthly house, that is our earthly body. So there's all kinds of metaphorical language going on here so you have to just work to keep up with what Paul's saying but he says we know that if our earthly house this tent is destroyed so Paul is looking at our body here this physical thing as a tent and if it's destroyed that is if it's cut loose let go then he says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, 
eternal in the heavens. So it's no longer then a body of flesh if it's not made with hands. In verses 2 through 4, he says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, that is our dwelling, which comes from heaven. We earnestly long for that. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, in other words, we're not so in so much an agony over our sin and the desires of our flesh that we just want to say, get rid of this body. If I didn't have to deal with this body, I could walk before the Lord in purity and holiness and be a godly person if I didn't have to deal with this flesh. But he's saying here, not that we want to be unclothed, but rather further clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life that is mortality the place of being subject to die might be swallowed up by life so paul is simply arguing in those three verses there he's making the statement that i would really like for the lord to come so that i wouldn't have to die and i could just put on my new body to be further clothed and then i wouldn't I wouldn't have to be concerned with this thing of being subject to dying and decay. But then he goes on to say, though, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, which we are familiar with. In verse five, he says, uh, six rather, he says, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body. Now the word home there is an interesting word. It means it's used of somebody who travels abroad. So Ken and Nancy are not at home right now. They have departed and left. They are no longer here. And he's using that as a metaphor to describe us. We have left our body. You catch that? We're no longer at home. The body has gone to the grave. And then he says... While we are at home, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent. That's the opposite of being at home. You've departed. And so you're absent from the Lord. So you, you can be absent from your body, but if you're not with him if you're still here in the body then you're absent from him it's like you've traveled abroad so if a person here in the body departs and leaves they've died then they like a person traveling abroad they've gone and left if you're not in heaven with the lord then you know you are abroad from him you've not you're not at home so you're, one, one of these two places, you're going to be at home. You're either at home here in the body or you're at home with the Lord, one or the other. That's a clear statement. So he says in verse 7, but now here we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, 
knowing that's the case, he says. Now think about this. We make it our aim. Some translate it, we make it our ambition, our goal, whether present or absent. Either one. It doesn't matter to him. Present or absent, to be well-pleasing unto him. And then what does he say next? For we must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, the judgment seat of Christ is in view here with Paul. Either way, at home in the body or at home with the Lord, he says, my ambition is to be well-pleasing to him. Having said that then, I want to look at several passages that, all, and to me, that's as abundantly clear as we can get. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, here, let me just do this. So I'm going to read several passages and make a comment, and you won't have probably time to keep up. But we already talked about Daniel 12, so I won't mention that again. But in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, it says, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Now, every commentator that I looked at said that reference there, all live to him, simply meant everybody, believers or unbelievers, all live to him. Doesn't say they live for him, they live to him. That is, they were all subject to God as the giver of life, and they will all be accountable to him one day. But in this particular passage here, um, he's telling us that if he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he told Moses that back in the burning bush, then the obvious deduction that you should make from that is these guys can't be dead. They must be alive. And that was what he intended for Moses to understand, and that's what Jesus intended for the Sadducees here to understand and those others that were with him. But I think in particular the Sadducees because you see, I won't say everybody, but many think the Sadducees, Sadducees felt that um, when you die, that was just it. There was nothing else after this. This life is all there is. Not that you just fell asleep and, and, and you know, and there'd be a future resurrection, because you remember, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe that there was anything after you died. It was just, life was over and that was it. So the point of it was then, and we can reframe it and ask ourselves the question this way then, in a couple different ways, is Yahweh the God of the dead or is he the God of the living? And that was the point of what Jesus was getting across, that he's the God of the living and not the God of the dead. In other words, He's not the God of dead bodies. 
He's the God of living souls, people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all live to him. Over in Matthew chapter 17, you remember the passage there concerning, uh, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And there Moses and Elijah came down on that mountain to meet with Peter and James and John. And they talked. They spoke. Now the question would be, were they resurrected to come back? I don't think so. I think they simply appeared there in that glorified state and there they were speaking, live people. Now they will be reunited with their bodies one day, but they were there speaking as live individuals. Over in Philippians chapter one, verse 23, Paul there says, um, I am hard pressed between two options. I think King James says two opinions. Not sure, what, how does it word it there? Two, Philippians one twenty-three. Anybody got that real quick? Betwixt two. Betwixt two, okay. I'm hard pressed between these two things. Having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is very much better. It's, this, it's not just far better or much better. It's a heavy emphasis on the fact of how much better. It's very far better. To depart and to be with Christ. And by the way, again, you can if you just stop and turn it around and ask yourself another question, the way one person did, and I thought this was pretty pretty classy. He said, "If it's really far better to depart and be with Christ, how could it be better if you were unconscious, if you weren't alive, if your soul was asleep?" The point of it all is, is that you aren't asleep, you're alive, and it's better to be with him. Revelation chapter 6, another passage I'm thinking some of you probably already thought about it. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice. These were souls that were crying. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Another passage that I know is controversial, the thief on the cross. And men argue over exactly where to place a comma with the word today. So let's look at that. Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, where he says, uh, the thief there says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, You'll see there that, of course, and we all know that there are no punctuation marks in the original manuscripts. There's no commas, no periods, no quotation marks, no capital letters, unless you have unseals and then it's all caps. There's none of that. So the translators here have placed a comma after the word you. Assuredly, I say to you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. If you move that comma to the left, one word, it would read like this. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see the difference? Just by moving a comma? In one case, the Lord's telling, in, the, in, in our first case, in other words, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's an assurance and a promise to that thief that he was going to be with him in paradise the moment he died. Of course, that was a little foretelling that you and I both are going to die today. And oftentimes it took two and three and four days sometimes for somebody to die when they were being crucified. That's why they were so shocked when Jesus was already found to be dead. They didn't have to break his legs. He was already gone. And so, if you change that comma around, well then, then it reads something a little differently. Because he's simply saying, well, I'm telling you today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And then it's an open-ended thing. Sometime out in the future. We don't know when. Maybe in the day of resurrection. Maybe in the day of the Lord. Whenever he's pointing forward to. You'll be with me in paradise. And so his body was going to the grave. And their interpretation then would be. Well he went to the grave. And his, his, he and the body and the soul. All both went to sleep. And sometime out there in the future. He's going to be raised up. And I think they commas in the right place where it is now because it fits consistently then with the rest of what we know in the New Testament concerning conscious life after we die. We already looked at uh, uh, the experience of Stephen and there's the rich man and Lazarus. We don't even need to go through that passage. I don't care whether it's literal, whether it's a parable, however you want to look at it, there were people that were in the afterlife and they were talking. So it doesn't really matter to me which way you want to view that. They were talking to each other. They were conscious. They were living. They weren't, their souls weren't asleep. This parable, if the souls were, of them were asleep, then this thing, whether it's a parable or whatever Jesus was using here, it had been totally meaningless. How could it have meant anything if they weren't communicating? Over in Hebrews chapter 12, when he's coming to the end of this book, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So we have heavenly beings there. And then he says, And to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect to the spirits of just ones or righteous ones made perfect. And they were there in this general assembly. What point would it be if we had a general assembly here and, and nobody was could communicate? They were all, everybody was sleeping. They were all unconscious and not aware of what was going on. It wouldn't have meant a thing. But they were in an assembly of people where communication was occurring because they were alive. And finally, I want to 
conclude, uh, I can run through this real quick. We have just the example of Jesus himself. You may remember over in Luke's account where he said, uh, no, I'm going to jump ahead of myself. I'll be careful here. The, the accounts of Jesus' body being laid in the ground or in the grave and taken off the cross, of being anointed by Mary for his burial are all very obvious ones. We don't need to dwell on those for any length. In Luke chapter 23, you remember as Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend or commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So we have the body of Jesus that was on a cross, that was taken down, or even before that, Mary anointed it for burial. It was placed in the tomb. The women went in the tomb. They saw where he was laid. Then they saw where he was gone. The body had been removed. I mean, that's that's not a, a difficult one for us to conceive of. His spirit, it says, went back to the Father. What happened then to the Lord Jesus in between? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, we find that it says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended? into the lower parts of the earth. He did not go, uh, excuse me, he, he, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, however you want to interpret it, again, because there are differences of opinion there, again, that point doesn't make any difference regarding the fact that his, his soul, his spirit is with the Father, his body's in the grave, and yet he still descended into Hades. I would turn that his soul. He is spirit, body, and soul, just like we are spirit, body, and soul. They are entities that are distinct in Scripture. And so to say that the soul dies or goes to sleep when the body dies... I think is a mistake. <clears throat> so, I'll bring it to an end. Back to our verse in Psalm 16. When David said, You will not leave my soul in Sheol. Remember in the New Testament, that's Hades. You will not leave my soul in Hades. Where did we just say that in Ephesians he was? And what was there? His soul. And so then he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The body of Jesus did not show corruption the way David's body did, as we're going to find out in Acts chapter 2. His body was subject to decay. He's still in the grave today. His body is, but not the Lord Jesus. So he says then, you will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David looked forward with anticipation to his body being resurrected from the grave. But over in Acts chapter two, when Peter is preaching, and, matter, and this fascinates me too, and I'm sorry I'm going over so long today, but you know, at this point in time, in Pentecost, 
Do you realize just about two months earlier, he was in denial of Jesus? Just two months, six, seven, or eight weeks earlier. Now here he is preaching the opening gospel message of the book of Acts. The most important one that God could choose to open the book of Acts with after the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And so he says here, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that had the fruit of his body, that is David, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So, if that was true of Jesus then we have all the assurance in the world that it's true of us. And that we who have believed in the Lord Jesus have every reason to know that we, as well as our loved ones in the past who have believed in the Lord, are with the Lord today. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. In Jesus' name, is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the confidence and the assurance that you give us in your word and the wonderful hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, we do, we do pray. We're just like Paul. We, we hope that your coming would be so near and so soon, even today, that we would not have to face that death, but we could be further clothed upon. That we would gain that heavenly dwelling that you promised us. Grant it, we pray, our Father, that we would live in such a way that we would be found well-pleasing unto you so that when we appear before your judgment seat in view of these things, that we would hear that well-done, uh, well thou good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray.